Welcome to IFL Science The Big Questions, the podcast where we invite the experts to explore the biggest mysteries of science with your host, Dr. Alfredo Carpinetti. Look around you. Everything you see is made of matter. From the device you're listening to this episode on to the furthest galaxies of the cosmos. But when we look at the physics, there is no clear reason why this should be the case. Matter as an equal and opposite alternative called antimatter. Particles of antimatter have the same mass as matter, but an opposite charge. So why did the early universe favor one and not the other? We don't know, but we're about to find out, hopefully. Welcome to a new episode of IFL Science, The Big Questions. We are joined by experimental particle physicist, Dr. Jeffrey Scott Angst, who is the spokesperson of the Alpha Collaboration at CERN. The question we're going to explore today is why is the universe made of matter and not antimatter? Dr. Angst, it's a pleasure having you with us. Could you tell us a little bit uh, about yourself? Yes, okay. So I'm uh, a professor of physics in the University of Aarhus in Denmark, but I spend all of my time in Geneva because uh, my main activity is the research on the Alpha experiment, which has been going on for a long time now. We started in about 2006. We deal with anti-hydrogen. I guess we'll talk more about that. But uh, Alpha is about 60 people, a uh, rather small experiment on the scale of CERN. But uh, again, we've been operating for a long time. We predate the LHC, you know, the, the big machine here. And it's a very interesting branch of, of physics, very different than the typical thing that goes on here at CERN. I'm an American, uh, but I've been in Europe for 30 years or so. And uh, my job is in Denmark, but I, I live in Geneva. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the Alpha uh, collaboration and what exactly you do before we go into the matter of antimatter? Sure. So antimatter is this kind of mysterious substance that we all puzzle about because it looks as if you could make a universe out of antimatter, but matter and antimatter don't exist in the same space. That's a very bad thing. They annihilate, release about lots of energy, but yet the particles of, you know, every particle that we know about that makes up the, the universe as we know it has an equivalent antimatter particle. So we're trying to study antimatter in very, with high, very high precision. And you, you might think you need a big machine like the LHC to do something like that, but it, it turns out the best way to get precision is to look at an atom of antimatter. So we work on the simplest possible antimatter atom, which is anti-hydrogen. So hydrogen is number one on the periodic table. It's the most abundant element in the universe. And here at CERN, we're able to create the antimatter equivalent and then study it. And this is an effort that's been going on for more than 30 years to try to learn how to do this, to make antihydrogen, to trap it so that you can study it. But that's our main goal. We're, we're asking a, a very fundamental question that 
the so-called standard model, you'll hear that thrown around all the time. This is our best understanding of how the universe is screwed together. It requires that hydrogen and antihydrogen behave in exactly the same way. So we're out to test that experimentally with very high precision to see if that's actually true. Maybe there's there's something we're missing here, right? Because the the elephant in the room is always, well, why did the universe choose matter instead of antimatter? And I, that's like, I'm sure that's your main interest in all this. Our interest is a little bit different. We, we want to really test the fundamental supposition that these two things are really equal but opposite. Thank you so much uh, for the answer. And uh, we're going to get into the big question that is, uh, why is the universe made of matter? But first, can we discuss a little bit about what we know already about uh, antimatter and what else there is to know? Sure. So let's first understand what we think should be the case, which is that these fundamental particles, let's, let's just take you and me. We're, we're made of three things protons, neutrons, and electrons, right, that go into the atoms that make up our, our bodies and everything around us. Each one of those particles has a purported antiparticle, which has, we think, the same mass, but the opposite charge, right? In, if we look deeper, the proton and neutron are made of quarks. The antiproton, antineutron will be made of antiquarks. And these things, when they get together, they annihilate, they, you know, make this huge microscopic explosion that leads to a lot of cool science fiction. And we'll get into that later if you want. But experimentally, we have to verify all of this, right? So does the antiproton really have exactly the same mass as the proton, right? Does the positron have exactly the same charge as the electron? Those are experimental questions that you can answer and you answer them with some uncertainty. Right? There's always an uncertainty in the measurement. So you can ask, do the electron and the positron have the same charge? Typically, we measure the charge to mass ratio. So the charge divided by the mass. And then you can go and do an experiment with these particles are available in the lab. And you can actually put an experimental limit on that. And when we mean, <clears throat> we talk about physical laws in, in, in science, we're talking about things we understand to the best ability we have to measure them, right? There, there are no real absolutes. You know, if in five years we do a better measurement and find some deviation, then we have to address that. We can't just go off and conclude that these things are completely identical. That's the theory. That's what the theory requires. And guys like me, we test the theory. So until very recently, the, the tests have been like that. Measure, compare a particle to its antiparticle. Okay, so what's unique about our work is that we can actually compare a composite thing, a atom that's composed of antimatter compared to an atom of matter, right? So that puts even more constraints on it because now you have the interaction between them and, and the internal structure of the hydrogen atom, which is something we've been, been studying for 200 years, right? To understand how atoms work and how they're, they're put together. So we're now able to delve into that with antimatter. And that's really cool to be able to do that after all this time, actually measure the properties of an antimatter atom. And that's basically what I've dedicated my career to, is, is getting to this point 
where we can actually compare these things and say, wait, are they the same? And, and how well do we know that they're the same? Absolutely fascinating. And as far as we can tell, how close are the antihydrogen to regular hydrogen? Do the forces of the universe, uh, electromagnetism, gravity, affects them uh, in different ways? Okay, that's a whole lot of questions right there. <laughs> the, the, the first thing that we're addressing mostly is the electromagnetism, because that's what holds atoms together, right? It's a positive and a negative charge that are attracted and make this bound state that we call an atom. Can, can we be a little bit quantitative? I mean, we're going to have to be if you want to understand how well we know these things. One reason that this is so compelling with antihydrogen is because we kind of think we understand everything about hydrogen, right? That the first atom that was, you know, kind of studied, I'm a professor in Denmark, Niels Bohr was the guy who made the first model of the hydrogen atom that we learned quantum theory and atomic physics by studying hydrogen, essentially, right? So. And then later came Dirac and quantum electrodynamics and antimatter. And so it's all nicely welded together in the, the matter sector. So the question is, how well do we measure those things first? How well do I actually understand hydrogen? Now, here's a, a simple experiment. Hydrogen, you know, the toy model for hydrogen, I have a nucleus and I have an electron going around it. And it has something called the ground state, which is the lowest energy. And if I shine light on that hydrogen atom, I can jump that electron up one quantum jump from the first state to the second one, right? Like the most basic thing you could do to an atom is just excite the electron from one energy state to the next. That was the revolution when we understood that that was a discrete, you know, quantum jump. You have to have exactly the right energy to do that. And when it comes to light, that means exactly the right color. Okay, so if you want to go from one to two in hydrogen, you need exactly the right color of light to shine on it, and then it'll jump. That color, we would translate to a frequency of the light, the electromagnetic radiation. And the reason I bring this up is that that's what we measure when we're dealing with a laser that excites an atom. We're measuring the frequency of the electromagnetic radiation. Okay, so let's talk about units. So frequency we measure in hertz, you know, just like your home stereo goes you know, 20 to 20,000 hertz right? Cycles per second. The electromagnetic radiation that we're talking about with atoms has a frequency of one and 15 zeros of Hertz. Okay. So a, a thousand trillion Hertz. Okay. It's a big number. We can measure that number to plus or minus a couple of Hertz. Okay. So a few parts out of a thousand trillion. That's precision, right? That if you want precise measurements, you go to atomic physics. These are the guys who know how to actually measure things. Okay. So that's, that's also almost mind boggling. It's like, you know, in the, the top five of the numbers that we know, right. That, and how well we know them are things like this. Okay. And another thing I should point out is we measure that absolutely. When we're talking about Hertz, we're talking about, you know, per second. So we need actually the definition of time to go into that measurement and, and the measurements, best measurements on hydrogen compare these kind of frequencies to the definition of time, right? Which is a standard, you know, atomic clock. 
So this is serious measurement. We call metrology. You know, actually, what's the absolute scale of things that you know we have to define to even make a physics you know, to to be able to talk about time. Okay, so so that's what's very unique about our measurements is we're going to do we do the same thing with antimatter, and so people have been studying that hydrogen line since the first time anybody held up a prism to the sun, right? And 200 years of this. So we know that really well. So all I have to do, all I have to do is measure that in, in antihydrogen and compare the two. And then I have an incredibly precise comparison of, in this case, the electromagnetic behavior of an antiatom. So that's, that's what motivates this. That's why you go to an atom instead of just you know, looking at a particle in an accelerator or single particles, which can also be done very precisely right now. But this is a kind of a you know, higher level thing because you're looking at the interactions between the two also. Because we're looking for any evidence of completely new behavior, right? That's the whole key here. All the laws of physics that we understand predict these things are exactly the same. So if there's any difference, there has to be something we haven't thought of. And that's what drives us here, is that we know there's something wrong <laughs> with the, you know, the evolution of the universe and the matter and antimatter issue, but we haven't been able to identify what it is yet. So our job here is to take a really close look. Now you ask, how well do we know that these two things are the same? So the, the hydrogen guys have 15 zeros when they measure. In antimatter now, we have 12 zeros as of 2018. That's the last time we did the measurement. You may or may not, CERN was kind of shut down for a couple of years for upgrading. So the last real measurements we did were in 2018. But I think we've shown that we're going to be able to do the same type of precision that they have in hydrogen. We had some really good developments at the end of 2018. And uh, we're now just starting up again to, to be able to measure again. So, so that's where we are now with this particular comparison of hydrogen and antihydrogen. You also asked about, you mentioned gravity. So the, the, the atomic physics, the spectroscopy, the lasers, the light, that studies the internal structure of antimatter atoms. The other really interesting question is how does gravity affect antimatter? So we live in a, as far as we know, the universe is made of matter. But now we finally have something where we could ask, what happens if I drop some antimatter in the gravitational field of the Earth? You might ask, why haven't we already done that? We've, we've had antimatter particles around a long time, right? We've been working with antiprotons since the 80s. Why haven't we done that? Our positrons have been around forever. Why don't we know the answer to this? And that's because those particles are charged. And the electromagnetic interaction is much, much stronger than gravity. Gravity is a really, really weak force. Although, you know, you experience it if you, you fall down and break your collarbone. It's gravity that knocked you over, but it's electromagnetism that broke your collarbone right, in the collision. So gravity is a weak force. And any experiment that you could imagine doing with a charged particle would be completely overwhelmed by the electromagnetic interaction. So you need something that's neutral. And that's what antihydrogen is. It, it's net neutral. It's an atom with no net charge. 
And it's also something that's stable. You know, you make it, we think it'll just hang around forever as long as you keep it away from matter. So our, our second experiment, which is, I just got off shift. I've been here since 7 a.m. What we're doing right now is turning on, learning how to operate the experiment that we call Alpha G, which is the experiment to see what happens if you drop some antihydrogen in the gravitational field at the Earth. So there are two obvious questions. Does it fall? <laughs> is it repelled? That's a little bit of science fiction, but there are some papers out there where people say this would explain a lot of things if it goes up. If it falls, does it fall at the same exact rate as matter? Right? That's also an experimental question. And we're hoping to answer those questions in, in this machine, Alpha G. So it was first installed right at the end of 2018 before CERN shut down. Um, and right now it's, it's in its first serious shakedown and hopefully we'll be able to do some physics uh, before the end of this year. So it's very exciting. We, we have good success with the atom, the internal structure, and now we're gonna hopefully address the gravity uh, before too long. Gravity is a, is a big pain in modern physics, right? Because we understand general relativity, you know, motions of stars and, and black holes, and, but there's not a quantum theory of gravity. And we know everything else we've been able to quantize with great success, but gravity is this outlier that really gives people headaches. And so it, it's, it's kind of a no-brainer. If you have some antimatter <laughs> and, and we're the ones who have it, you should drop it. <laughs> And, and see what happens. So it's really exciting time. All this stuff has just come together in kind of the last five years where we're able to actually do all of these experiments. It is fantastic that we are hopefully at the edge of finding out some fundamental truths about uh, uh, why antimatter is not as abundant as matter. Yeah, I can't, I can't promise you to answer that question. I, I'm... <laughs> I'm actually, I don't really care. I, you know, it, to me, it's, I have this stuff. I'm able to create it and hold on to it. And so I'm going to study it and you know, let the chips fall however they do. It, this may or may not have anything at all to do with the predominance of matter in the universe. No one can predict this because we don't have even a good theory or, or framework about that. All right, so for our big question, what are the different avenues uh, in which uh, uh, researchers around the world are trying to investigate uh, this question? We mentioned uh, studying the electromagnetic properties of uh, antimatter, uh, the, the gravity. Uh, what else is out there trying to find an answer on why the universe uh, is uh, made of matter and not antimatter? Again, none of these are, are, you know, guaranteed to give you an answer, right? We, we like to liken this to a, a guy who's lost his car keys at night. So he looks under the street lamp, not because his keys will be there, but because he can see, right? So, so right now, we're, that's exactly what we're doing. We're, we're doing the experiments that we can do, and maybe there'll be some connection, but there's no guarantee or even a model. The third thing that, that's, so there may be a couple things that are overlooked here. One is at the LHC, you can go to the highest energy and maybe something new pops out, right? Maybe something that's completely unanticipated 
shows up because you're able to study an energy that's never been accessible before. So in particular, there's an experiment called LHCB that is really interested in the matter-antimatter symmetry or asymmetry. And so they're studying that, at, you know, the energy frontier at the highest possible energy that's achievable. So far, they haven't found any indications of, of new physics, but that's an obvious place to look, right? You look in the LHC and because we've never seen things that happened there before. Um, the other relevant experiment is the there's an experiment on the International Space Station called the Alpha Mass Spectrometer. And it's looking for antimatter that comes arriving from space. Now, there are some natural mechanisms to produce antimatter. You know, if, as long as there's high energy stuff out there, it can be produced in the same way that we produce it at CERN by collisions with matter. So there's not no antimatter in the universe, but it's as far as we can tell, it, you know, it, it doesn't just hang around. It's only produced occasionally. So they're looking for any, any deviation that might indicate that there is some antimatter left over someplace. If you want to be you know, really exaggerated, the universe is really big, right? and, and we haven't been exploring it for very long. Um, what if the antimatter went off to the left after the Big Bang, right? And, and we just haven't seen it? Okay, that's, that's kind of a ridiculous example, but we can't completely rule out that there isn't some antimatter out there somewhere. So it, that's why it's, it's cool to go looking uh, in every way that we know how. I think that sort of covers the essence of what people are doing to, to try to address this. But there isn't a good theory, you know, to, to tell us where to look. We know there's a little bit of asymmetry, but it, it doesn't come anywhere near to giving us the university that we have, right? The, the amount of asymmetry from the Big Bang. Because that's the issue. When energy at the beginning of the universe in the, the Big Bang some of it went into mass, right? E equals mc squared. That, that's Einstein who tells us energy and mass are interchangeable. We use energy here in the lab to make our antiprotons. The thing is, when we do that in the lab, we always get equal amounts of matter and antimatter. And, and as far as we know, that's a natural law. So that's the, that's the problem here. We, we simply don't know if, if there were equal amounts of matter and antimatter, what happened? Why did most of the matter survive? So there's really not a good theory. That's why we look. I think that is a fantastic motivation to keep looking. I, that's the way I, I put it. I mean, I, I can't make any kind of predictions about that my measurements will in, be involved in this in any way. But it's clear this, this so-called baryon asymmetry, that's the technical term for it. That's what motivates us. We know there's something wrong and we have the best, most sensitive possible technique to look at this exotic stuff. So of course you have to do that, right? I mean, obviously. <laughs> well, wonderful. And uh, I wish you the best of luck to actually find uh, that there's something absolutely wrong uh, with uh, our current laws uh, of uh, physics. That, that would be cool. What I, what I always say to people is that, you know, if that happens and we find a difference, that's amazing. If we don't find a difference, it's just as hard <laughs> to do the experiment and <laughs> not so amazing. <laughs> Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. It's my pleasure. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much.
Thanks for listening to IFL Science The Big Questions. Head over to iflscience.com and don't forget to sign up to our newsletter so you don't miss out on the biggest stories each week. Until next time.